the mystical tradition and mystical language. The great mystical tradition is almost 2,000 years old. We're part of what I like to call a textual community, a textual community. These mystical texts were written down to help other people, sometimes within small religious groups, sometimes within larger communities, to help them along the way, along that path to transformation. These mystical communities and the textual communities ex exist today, and in a certain way, they're, they're even strengthened today. We have more of the riches of the Christian mystical tradition available today to readers than we've probably had ever before. The main thing, of course, is to recognize that we stand within that tradition. If you read almost any of the, the great mystics, they'll tell you the books that influenced them so much. Teresa of Avila in her life, chapter 8. Teresa was a kind of indifferent nun. She really wasn't much of a nun at all. She tried to practice interior prayer, but she wasn't getting anywhere for 20 years. She says she didn't get anywhere. And then Grace changed her. But part of that change came through seeing a statue of bleeding Christ during Lent and meditating on it. Part of it came from reading St. Augustine's Confessions, she tells us in chapter 8. She said she read the Confessions. It had been just translated into Spanish, actually. And when she came to the place in Augustine's Confessions where he describes his conversion, suddenly she felt as if the saint were talking directly to her. She opened her heart and grace, in a certain sense, poured in. But she got that through the inspiration, the median, if you will, the instrumentality of reading about Augustine's conversion in the Confessions. So mystical books do have effects. Another little story to uh, illustrate that. Mystical Begin, a free-form religious woman uh, in Austria, in Vienna, Margaret Blanbecken. We have a life of her by her friar confessor, a Franciscan, and he tells the story about she could probably read the office, but she couldn't really, was not fully literate. So he and she would read Bernard of Clairvaux's sermons on the Song of Songs together. She would ask him questions about what is Bernard saying, you know, what does he mean here? And he would explain Bernard's deep mystical teaching to her as they read the uh, confessions together. What's nice about these little vignettes through the, what Teresa tells us about herself and what uh, Becken's uh, confessor tells us is you, you get a sense of how these texts have been used by people and have influenced people and have been instruments, I would say, of grace in terms of the pursuit of a deeper awareness of God's presence in our lives. The study of mysticism is really a study of the language that the mystics have left us because we have no direct access to the consciousness of any past figure, or even the consciousness of people uh, today. What we have is the record that they leave to us in their words and in their teachings. All mystics insist that God is utterly ineffable and cannot be spoken about, but they sure say a lot. <laughs> they go on and on. They feel compelled to speak about that which one cannot speak, because that is what they're called to inviting others to try to reach that kind of consciousness which will change people because God isn't an object. So we can't use objective language in talking about God. We have to use a language that's more like poetry than it is an objective description in any scientific kinds of fashion. And so when we read the mystics, I think we have to be conscious of that. It can still be deeply theological language. And it can have you know, a coherence and a precision 
but it's not an objective language. We can't talk about God as an object because God isn't an object. And so the mystics use what I call verbal strategies for speaking about God. They speak about God through images that suggest rather than exhaust. For example, in the 13th century, mystics begin talking about God as the abyss. God as the abyss. Or one of the traditional images used about the absolute infinite unknowability of God is God described as an infinite ocean in which the soul can swim like a fish. Or like the vast expanse of the air in which the soul flies around like a bird. Mystics also use a variety of metaphors. They use paradoxes. They use oxymoronic expressions. You know, think of the whole issue of the brilliant darkness of God. You know, how can you have a brilliant darkness? But putting two ideas that don't go together in the world of common experience makes a suggestion to us about the world of that uncommon, that uncommon world of a deeper consciousness. Mystical language also is always both positive and negative. It describes God in positive terms. God is good, God is kind, God is benevolent, God is a great shining light, etc. The Greeks call this cataphatic language, positive languages. But the mystics always insist that we can't talk about God's so negative language is better, apophatic language, than positive language. All mystics use and combine positive language with negative language in a whole variety of ways. And most mystics insist there's a third level, a level that goes beyond both affirmation and negation, because God is ultimately beyond all our affirmations and all our negations. So I like to say we have cataphatic language, the positive, apophatic language, which is seen as more correct and negative, and then you have hyperphatic language, hyperphatic language. You go beyond yes and no. You go into a kind of realm where you're testing the limits of human expressibility. The presence and absence of God if you begin to read the tradition, you'll see that a lot of the mystics talk about God's absence. God is not here. God is either absent or sometimes God seems to be punishing those who love him the most. There's always a complex interplay between presence and absence when we talk about consciousness of God. You know, I actually have two quotations. First one is from Simon Weil, great French philosopher and mystic of the 20th century. Many of you, of course, have read her. I hope you have profited from her the way that I have. She once said, this is in one of her notebooks, contact with human creatures is given us through a sense of presence. Contact with God is given us through a sense of absence. Compared with this absence, presence becomes more absent than absence. My second quotation comes from John Maine. My favorite of John Maine's books, and read them all, is The Way of Unknowing. He has a wonderful chapter here on God's two silences, the silence of revelation and the silence of absence. One of the things we must learn in our meditation as we mature, as we go further down the path, is to be equally content with either of these forms of silence, either with the infinite sense of his presence or with the total sense of his absence. Now, it's hard for us because when we start to meditate, we haven't got to the stage 
where we can be equally content with absence as with presence. And we're always looking for our meditation to satisfy us. We're always looking to show to ourselves, to prove to ourselves that it works. That now we know God. That now we learn to live in his presence. But the purpose of the second form of silence, his absence, is to purify us so that we might become strong, strong in love, strong in fidelity, and to ensure that we love God for himself and in himself, and not just for any manifestation of his presence. That interplay between the presence and the absence is crucial to the, the mystical tradition.